St. Teresa of Calcutta once said, we cannot separate our lives from the Eucharist. Jesus made himself the bread of life to give us life. Night and day, he is there. If you really want to grow in love, come back to the Eucharist. Come back to adoration. Now we know why she's a saint. How long has this understanding been about God being present to us in the bread, in the Eucharist? Oh, it goes back to the Old Testament. When I was on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, one of the things that we did is we spoke with religious leaders in the region. And we would invite them to the team meeting to let us know if they were receiving any threats or anything so we could be of assistance. And so I kind of made friends with this Jewish rabbi. And so the Holy Spirit called me to invite him to come to church with me on Sunday. Now, he's never been inside a Catholic church. So he came. Now, I wasn't deaconing or anything. I sat in the back with him. So we're just in the back. He's looking up at the altar. He keeps looking, looking. He finally says to me, what is this? I said, oh, well, this is the altar of sacrifice. And then we have the credence table. And I was describing the, the wine on the tears, the water, the, uh, the laver that the priest used for washing, which he would have recognized from Exodus chapter 30 and Exodus chapter 40. He would have recognized the altar. He would have recognized the candles. And he goes, what is that back there? In our church, we have the tabernacle behind the altar where it belongs. And uh, anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, Father, don't worry. About it. I'm just kidding. And he said, "I said that's the tabernacle." And he said, "What is in there?" I said, "The lechem hafanim." And his face went, whoa, the lechem hapanim, he knew that was the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. Or panim could also mean in Hebrew face. The bread of the presence. The bread of, he would have recognized that from Exodus chapter 25. And you shall make its plates and dishes and bowls for incense. And you, will, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me always. And whenever the bread of the presence was present, you had to have the sanctuary lamp lit continually while the bread, while the lamb hapanim was in the tabernacle. All the way back to the Old Testament. What does Jesus tell us in John chapter 6? I am the bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, for the bread that I give you is my flesh for the life of the world. Now, Jesus says many times in the Gospels, this is my body. This is my blood. How do we know he was meant it literally? How do we know he wasn't speaking metaphorically? (laughs) Well, I had an opportunity the first My first tour in Australia, I was in Perth, and I spoke at a university, and I gave kind of an academic talk on atheism. I talked about entropic principle, fine-tuned universe, multi-universe theory, uh, entropy, all that kind of stuff. And after I gave the talk, one of the atheists came up to me and said, oh, you know, because I, you know, I obviously, I'm 
I don't believe in God or anything, but you were very respectful. You didn't demean us. You didn't belittle us. And actually, you gave me some things to think about. I said, well, I appreciate your honesty, uh, professor. I said, uh, you know, to make a small talk, what do you teach here? He said, Greek. I said, wait a minute. You teach Greek at the university here? Yes. I said, if you don't mind, professor, do you happen to have a Greek New Testament in your office? He said, of course. I said, if you mind, can you go get it for me? I am dying to ask you a question. So, first of all, why would he have a Greek New Testament in his office if he's a Greek professor that's an atheist? Why would he have a Greek New Testament? For him, it's just literature. It's just a form of Greek literature. Doesn't mean anything, but he had it. So he brought it, and we looked up Luke 22.19 in Greek. Luke 22.19, so I said, right here, where it says, this is my body. Can you tell me what it says in that sentence? So he looks at it. He said, well, the subject of the sentence is making an absolute identification with the object. I said, can you say that slower so I can tell people what you mean? <laughs> so he laughed. He said, the person speaking, the subject of the sentence, is using a demonstrative pronoun construction, taute in Greek, this, to make an, ident an absolute identification between the object and himself. I said, let me be clear. Can you read that sentence and say it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's a metaphor, it's a representation, it's just a symbol. Sometimes it is, sometimes it is. He said, absolutely not. I said, let me be clear again. If the person was speaking, whatever this is, if it was his arm, if it was his leg, his kidney, his liver, some part of his body, and he said, that is me, that's what he's talking about? He said, yes. I said, Professor, how could you get a different interpretation of that verse from what you just told me? He said, I said, Jesus. I'll explain. I know what he meant. So exegesis is when you look at a text and you extract the meaning from the text. I said, Jesus is when you read your own meaning into the text. He said, that's the only way you can get a different interpretation from what I told you. Why is that so powerful? The guy was an atheist. He has no dog in the fight. He could care less what the Protestants say. He could care less what the Catholics say about that verse. He's just looking at it and saying, this is what it means objectively. So when Jesus said it, he meant it literally. There is no question or doubt about that. The only way you can get a different interpretation, you have to put your own interpretation into that text. So Jesus, now, how did the, uh, the people around uh, after Jesus, the apostles, when they handed on the truth, how did they understand? For example, Ignatius of Antioch, he received, what did he receive from the apostles? Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions. See how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist because they do not confess 
that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, we call this food, oh, by the way, that was in 110 A.D., 110 A.D., Justin Martyr, 151 A.D., we call this food Eucharist, and no one else is permitted to partake of it except one who believes our teaching is true. That the food which has been made into Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer is both the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. There is no question or no doubt Father, church father after church father after church father taught clearly and unequivocally that Jesus Christ was fully present in the Eucharist. The first person to deny it, well, was Berengarius of Tours, a deacon. <laughs> Sad to say, he was French though, he was French. Um, <laughs> And he was the first person in the history of the church to publicly deny the Eucharist, that Jesus Christ was present in the Eucharist. Pope Gregory had the, the, the uh, seventh had to school him, and he actually did come back to the faith. But before he came back, he had to sign a declaration, which actually Paul VI included in his magnificent letter on the Eucharist, Mysterium Fidei, the mystery of faith. He has, it says, and this is what Baron Gary's had to sign to come back to the church. I believe in my heart and openly profess. Now, instead of, you know, before we receive communion, you know, I wish they would move the sign of peace. You know, in the early church, the sign of peace was, was uh, after the prayers of the faithful. Then you did the sign of peace. Why was it there? Who gets the A tonight? Anybody know why the sign of peace was after the prayers of the faithful and before the offertory? Remember the scripture? If, if you have something against, you go, you go, you make your offering, you have something against your brother, go make peace with your brother, then come back to make your offering. So the sign of peace was there, then was the offertory. You made your offering. Now, I mean, I mean, you don't do this, this I mean, they don't do the sign of peace here, but in a lot of places I've been to, I mean, not only is the sign of peace glad handing all, and it's all the noise, but then they have sign of peace music. I'm like, no. I mean, you ever been to a Byzantine church or a Maronite? The prayer they say before they receive, I believe with all my heart that what I'm about to receive is the living. Oh, what? That's awesome. I wish we would say something like this before we receive. I believe in my heart and openly profess that the bread and the wine placed upon the altar are, by the mystery of the sacred prayer and the words of the Redeemer, substantially changed into the true and living flesh and blood of Jesus Christ the Lord. And it goes on. Awesome. Now, even though Berengarius messed up, what this started was a Eucharistic renaissance in the church. The next Pope, Pope Urban IV, ordered uh, St. Thomas Aquinas to write music in honor of the Eucharist. So St. Thomas Aquinas wrote O Salutaris, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote that. 
Todd Tamerco, St. Thomas Aquinas. Panis Angelicus, St. Thomas Aquinas. Beautiful hymns to the mystery of our Lord Jesus Christ present in the Eucharist. Also around this time, benediction started. Right? So all of these fruits came out of that one messed up deacon's stuff. <laughs> so it shows how Christ can bring fruit out of anything, huh? So here is the key, though. Why is adoration so important? We live in a world that's filled with noise and distractions. Full of noise and distractions. So much so, we've become so comfortable with the noise, we've become uncomfortable with silence in church. How many places have I been to where everybody's afraid? Here's what I mean. The, the readings, right? The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Woo! Responsorial Psalm starts. Responsorial Psalm. Second reading. Word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Like, whoa, 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 time out. God just spoke to us in his word. God is speaking to us. He's feeding us with words of life in and through his holy word. Can we let four seconds of silence so that God, that word can sink into our hearts before we move on to the next thing? And the other thing is this, I, you know, I'm a musician. I played music in the jazz band in Notre Dame. I've done, I, I love music. I played on a couple of records. I love it. But here's the thing. Every second of mass doesn't have to be filled with music, right? When people receive Jesus in the Eucharist, that may be, that may be their only adoration time for the entire week. It's okay to have some silence. No offense to I love, love you guys, man. Love you guys, man. <laughs> but here's, here's what I mean. When God speaks to us, God doesn't speak to us here with these things on the side of our heads. When God wants to speak to us, he speaks to us what St. Benedict called the arum cordis, the ear of the heart. And in order to hear that voice, you have to be quiet. That's why Psalm 46 verse 11 says, be still and know that I am God. The word for know there in Hebrew is yalda, right? Yalda means knowledge that's gained by experience. So if you, you, can tra you can read that in Hebrew, be still and experience God in the silence and in the quiet. Because remember, for the, the Israelites, the heart was not just an organ that pumped blood through the body. The heart was called the seat of the will. The heart was the place where your desire for God lives inside of you. That's where God touches you. That's where God can change your life. But in order for God to do that, we have to be quiet. Zacharias 2.13, be silent all flesh in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord has roused himself in his holy dwelling. Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. How is that important? You know, once I was given a talk, and after the talk, they had a reception. And this young, this high school girl's a senior. She comes up to me. She says, Deacon, 
you know, I, I heard you went to Notre Dame, and that's one of the schools I want to go to. And she was telling me how excited she was applying and the process of getting ready for college. I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. And, and she was saying, no, all these, she had all these choices of where she should go. And I said, oh, have you stopped to figure out where God wants you to go? She said, what? I said, well, where does God want you to go to school? I can ask God. I said, sure. I said, do you know what adoration is? Adoration? I said, I'm not sure. I said, okay, have you ever seen in your church sometimes where the Eucharist, the host, is in the middle of this thing that looks like a starburst? Like it looks, looks like the sun and milk. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's adoration. Go to that. Okay? So when you go there, take all the letters you've been getting. All the letters, all the places you think you want. Take them all with you to adoration. First thing you do when you kneel down before Jesus, thank the Lord that you even have the opportunity to go to college. Because a lot of kids don't. And then say, Lord, where do you want me to go? Then, then as you're before the Lord, look at the letters that you're getting, you know, and uh, I'm not sure. Put that one to the side. Oh, yes, put that one to the, over here. Do you, wow. Then the other ones, that, put those to the side. Then you go through the ones that you, okay. Do you narrow them down to two or three? Go visit those schools. Now, you also have to do the other things, right? Look at the financial aid package. Yeah, you really got to do that, right? I mean, and all those different things. But then you keep going back to adoration. Which one hour a week? One hour a week. She goes, for an hour? I said, look, I promise you, your hand will not fall off if it's disconnected from your phone for an hour. I promise you, okay? And just say, Lord, where do you want me to be? Take those letters, say, Lord, where do you want me to be? And of course, talk with your parents, go through the financial aid pack, all of that. But then you, fit, you know, you, you'll have, I mean, after you go visit the schools, you'll have a sense You'll have a sense of peace. You'll have a sense of, like, yes, you know, one school will stand on your mind, you know? And if everything else lines up, financial aid, pack, boom, that's where God wants you to go. She was like, cool. <laughs> it's really that simple. That beautiful gift of vulnerability before the Lord in that blessed sacrament. Now, why is silence important? Remember, how God comes to people in the Old Testament and the New Testament often in silence. Remember Samuel? Samuel was in the temple with the priest Eli. He was sleeping. The Lord called him, Samuel! Samuel, he woke up, he was asleep. Remember Solomon? David's son, when he became king after Solomon died? What was he doing when the Lord called him? Sleeping. In the New Testament, Joseph, when the angel came to Joseph all four times, what was Joseph doing each and every time? Sleeping. See, there's something about stillness and silence and quiet where the Lord can speak to us. Now, how did that work with me? I first discovered adoration in high school. Um, ever since I was 12 or so, I thought, you know, I might have a vocation. I was one of those kids that when my mom remembers telling me she used to take us to Mass, you know, my brothers and sisters, were, I, I was the oldest, but they were all fidgeting around, you know how kids do at Mass, but I was just sitting at the end of the pew, I was just like, 
laser focused on what's going on at the altar. And my mom noticed that. She goes, ooh, maybe something's going on here. And so when I got older, she goes, do you want to serve mass? I said, yes. And to this day, I still have that childlike joy every time I serve at the altar. It's like I'm 12 again or 13 again. That, that same, I love always being at the altar ever since I was a kid. And I remember one time very clearly, Father O'Connor, the old priest with the Irish brogue, I was serving mass for him one day. And Father O'Connor was about to elevate the host. It was my turn to ring the bells. I had my hand on the bells. He was going to elevate. And I remember thinking clearly, I could do that. I can totally see myself doing what that priest is doing. So then I got to high school. And the abbot of, I went to a Benedictine high school, St. Benedict's Prep in Newark. The abbot got up during convocation one morning. And he said, we have, any of you young men might be interested in our way of life. You know, we're starting a program. And I thought to myself, right then as I was standing in convocation, I want to do that. So I found a novice master. I said, I'm interested. And I did the program all four years of high school. I got into Notre Dame. I went to Notre Dame for four years. I would come back during the summers and live in the monastery for a month during of my summer break I spent with the monks. After I graduated from ND, I worked at the university for a year as I was still discerning. And plus, I wanted a little life experience, you know. And I, so I did that, and I joined the monastery. And I thought, I'm going to die here. I'm never leaving. And I was actually quite happy there. What was awesome was, as novices, we get, well, the only thing I didn't like was get up at 4.45. That wasn't good. <laughs> I am not a morning person at all. But I did it because all my other brothers were doing it too. And get up, and then... We start off our day with adoration, the novices. We have to do an hour in adoration before matins in the morning. And I love that time before the Lord. Then after a couple of years, my mom got sick and almost died. And because I've been helping take care of my family since I was 12, I, I asked and received permission from the abbot to te- for a temporary leave to take care of my mother and my sister, who was still in high school. And as I mentioned the other day, when I was out of the monastery, I went to a wedding. I met the woman. But you know what? I'll be honest with you. After that wedding thing, I said, this is nice, but I'm going back to the monastery. Because you got to understand, I never intended to ever get married. Because of the stuff happened in our house growing up, and I thought, God's going to be the monk. I don't have to worry about it. I said, I had a nice time with her, but I'm going back to the monastery. She kept calling to go on a date. I said, no, I'm going back to the monastery. And I did go back. But my mother was not... After three months, she wasn't fully convalesced. So the monk said, look, you can't split your time between here and there. Take some more time. So I did. And I went on a date. And I didn't go back. So. (laughs) But we were dating, and then it got serious. And, you know, then she moved out to go to graduate school on the West Coast. And I stayed in Jersey. Because, first of all, I never in my life thought I'd ever live in, in, on the west coast of the United States. I, I'm from Jersey. As far as we're concerned, Philadelphia is the west coast. <laughs> but love won out, and I made the move out west. And then when things started getting really serious with us, like start talking about marriage, I got scared. And I said, you know what? I think I might go back to the monastery. And which was devastating to Colleen. But 
I was scared. I said, you know why? I did not want to end up like my parents. Because, you know, young people ask me, what is it like to be a child of divorce? And I don't mean to demonize anybody here who's divorced. But I'm just telling you how I felt as a child in that situation. I tell these kids, marriage is a beautiful thing, but it's also the cross. And divorce is when the parents put the cross down and the kids pick it up. I didn't want that. So I went to a monastery, not to join that community, but to discern. And I spent six months every day before Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. And my only prayer was, Lord, whatever you want, I will do it. Whatever you want, I will do it. Now, sometimes when you're in that, people ask, well, how do you know it's your will or if it's God's will? Well, a couple things. One, first of all, I thought I was going to, when I first went to discern, I thought I'm going to go back to the monastery. Despite all the things that was going on with Colleen, I thought I'm going to go back to the monastery because why would God put that desire there ever since I was a kid and then all of a sudden take it away? But I left there six months later going to get married. So you're going with one plan, but God's got another one. That's one way, because it's not necessarily what you think is going to happen. And I talked about the before this sense of peace. Why is that important? There's a difference between happiness and joy. And the problem in our culture today is everybody's trying to be happy without first being joyful. There is a difference between happiness and joy. Let me explain what I mean. I'll give you an example. Tiger Woods, okay, could have been, could have been the greatest golfer that has ever lived. Past Watson, past Nicholas, maybe even past Sam Snead, could have been the greatest golfer of all time. Instead, what brought him to his knees? It was biblical, like King David biblical. Pornography and prostitutes which he publicly admitted, and everybody found out about it. Now think about this for a second. Why was he involved in that world? Because he had everything the culture said you have to have to be happy and free and fulfilled. He had the money, tens upon millions of dollars, not just in winnings, earnings on the golf course, but endorsement deals from Nike and others. Beautiful, well, I think all women are beautiful, but as far as the culture, aesthetically beautiful wife, cars, mansion, all the stuff, and it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. He was trying to be happy without first being joyful. How do you find the joy? Romans chapter 8, here's what Paul says. For those who live according to the flesh, soma, so uh, flesh here, when Paul uses it, he's, he's talking about the things of the world, earthly things, right? So those who live according to the flesh, the things of the world, set their minds on the things of the flesh, the things of the world. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of God, 
set their minds on the things of the spirit, on the things. It makes sense. Here's the kicker. To set the mind on the flesh, on the things of the world, is death. Now you have to understand, death in Hebrew is the word mavet. Mavet just doesn't mean physical death. It means to cut yourself off from the life of God. To cut yourself off from God's life. Let that sink in for a second. Cutting yourself off from God's life is worse than death. Because after death, you still have two choices, right? Smoking and non-smoking. Come on now. So to set your mind on the things of the world is to cut yourself off from God. But to set the mind on the spirit, on the things of God, is life and peace. That's what adoration gives you. Adoration will help you focus on the joy so you can have life and peace. Now, I know your next question. Well, Deacon, why do I have to do that in adoration? I can pray anywhere. I can pray right here in church. I can pray in my car. I can pray in my house. I can pray anywhere. Why does adoration make a difference? That's a good question. Like when I talked to my wife last night, I could Skype her. I could FaceTime her but I'd rather be with her. Because isn't it always better to be in the presence of the person that you love when you're talking to them? Mm-hmm. Well, well, Deacon, I could just pray like this before the tabernacle. Why do I need Jesus exposed? I could just pray right here. I said, you can. You can do that. But think of it like this. Say you have somebody that you love come over to your house and when they get to the front door you say hey you see that chair next to the door pull it over and sit down and you pull a chair you you talk to them through the door that works you can do that but isn't it always better to be in the presence of the person that you love when you're talking to them that's the difference Jesus is fully present in the Eucharist. He he promised in Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not just spiritually present, because he gave us the Holy Spirit for that, but also physically present in that Eucharist. Now, what do you say with Christ in the Eucharist? Look, so the first time I had was when I was uh, in high school. Then I was before Jesus for six months to certainly should I be married or not. Right decision. Right decision. Again, love being married, but it's much harder than being a monk. Tell you this, just saying. <laughs> then I was discerning the diaconate. Now, I didn't even know what a permanent deacon was because I've never seen a permanent deacon before. I've just seen transitional deacons, the guys in the seminary, some of the guys in the monastery with me. So I usually don't 
tell this part publicly because it's a little strange. I am not, okay, just to let you know, I'm not necessarily a charismatic, I'm more like a, you know, incense, Latin kind of guy. But I had an experience which I cannot explain. I moved to Oregon in 1995. 1996 was our first Easter vigil in Oregon. So we're in Immaculate Heart of Mary Church. You know, the Gloria starts, the lights go back on, they blow the candles out, the lights go on, they start singing the Gloria. Now, my wife is sitting next, standing next to me, we're singing, and I, I hear someone call out, Deacon. Now, I thought that there was somebody in the church named Deacon. Like Deacon Jones, the football player, something like that. So I'm, I'm looking at my wife, she's like not reacting, she didn't hear it. So I'm looking around, I'm like, no one else is reacting to that voice. I'm like, did they not hear that? I'm like, and so I'm like, nah, maybe I'm just tripping. You know, maybe the incense got me high or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I, I went to Father Nicholas after him. I said, Father, um, is there someone here who's deacon? He said, oh, he's from Tanzania. Oh, you'd make a great deacon. I said, well, wait, 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 Father, what are you talking about? I'm married. I can't be a deacon. He goes, no, no, no. Permanent deacon. I said, what? I, your accent, Father. What are you? Permanent. I said, what? So he goes into sacristy, gets a copy of Lumen Gentium. Uh, he had the Vatican II documents. He opens up Lumen Gentium. He finds the paragraph. Read this. At the lower end of the hierarchy is the deacon. And I read that, and I said, oh, my goodness. That's what I'm supposed to do. And, I mean, this, this like, wave hit me. And I read that, I'm like, oh my goodness, that is it. That's what I'm supposed to do. I was 30 years old, okay, 30. I called the chancery office. Well, they were close Easter Monday. I called Easter Tuesday. Archdiocese of Portland, yes, I'm supposed to be a deacon. <laughs> okay, what's your name? You know, that whole thing. So, so uh, I, I, was, I got accepted into the program at 30. Um, there was no class that year, so I had to wait for the next cohort the next year, so I started taking some adult faith formation classes to get my head back in the academics, because in our diocese, you need a master's degree in theology in order to be ordained. So that's why I went to the University of Dallas to study theology and all of that. So I'm ordained a deacon at 35, the youngest deacon ever ordained in history of the diocese. They stick me in an inner city parish because I'm the only black guy. So, hey, right, put me, in, put me in the hood. Put me in the hood, right? So, I mean, so it's cool. You know, we have a very rich, diverse parish. It's awesome. Half the, there's only not, it's very small, poor, inner city, about 200 families. Half are Vietnamese. The other half are a wonderful mix of Filipinos and Africans and Romanians. Just a wonderful mix of people. So, I serve there. And I was, you know, serving with all that stuff. So then one of my classmates from graduate school, a guy named Carl Olson. Carl today is the editor of Catholic World Report. He's also a best-selling author, has several good books with Ignatius Press. He was a classmate of mine. He says, uh, hey, you should come and give a talk in my parish. I said, talk about what? Because all I was doing was threat assessment. Remember I talked about my, my career? I, so at this time, I'm, I'm in, in law enforcement. Um, I talked about after 9-11, I received special training in threat assessment, and then advanced training in quantical and threat assessment. So I'm police chief, I'm doing threat assessments, I started a consulting company, all that, and I wasn't talking about anything on the Catholic faith. 
But he said, you should come and give it. I said, oh, okay. So I basically went to the parish and read my paper from grad school. That was my talk. I literally read the paper. The pastor says, oh, you should come back and talk about something else. Like, talk about what? What are, you, what are you talking about? He goes, no, no, like, do something. You're married. Talk about something on marriage. Uh, okay. So I came back, like, a couple months later. Someone from the Catholic radio station was there. They said, oh, Deacon, you should do something for us on the radio. What? What, what are you talking? I don't know anything about radio. What are you talking about? No, no. Come to the station. So I go to the station. I talk with the folks there. And I start doing this little 30-minute pre-tape show called Faith and Life. How to connect your faith to your life. Very simple. Eight months later, Jerry Usher, who was the host of Catholic Answers Live at that time, came to the station to help raise money. And he, of course, he's doing a live show from the studio. And he hears my little show. And he says, oh, Deke, you should be on Catholic Answers Live. I'm like, dude, look, I can't be on a show like that. I'm just a schmo from Jersey, man. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, no, 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 this is great. You should. I'm like... All right, so I did Catholic Answers Live. Now, when I was at the University of Dallas at that time, Father Mitch Packer was teaching. He was my scripture professor, by the way. All my Greek and Hebrew comes from him, all right? So he hears me on Catholic Answers Live. So Father Mitch calls me and says, how come you're on Jerry's show, you're not on mine? <laughs> uh, I don't know, Father. So, so he invites me to EWTN Live. And I'm thinking, okay, I get to see, I've never been there before. I get to see the network. I get to see Father Mitch again. This is exciting, you know. So I did the television and it was great. So I go back home, not even thinking about it. The next few days, my email was slammed. I was getting emails from Malta, from Nigeria, from the Philippines. I'm thinking, what did I say? Then Doug Keck, who's executive, who was executive vice president at EWTN at that time, called me and says, Deacon, we're getting tremendous response to your appearance with Father Mitch. Do you think you could take what you talked about with him and turn it into 13 episodes? <laughs> uh, okay, I mean, it was, it was like crazy. Now I'm submitting this outline and they accept the outline right away. When can you come down to film? I have to look at my calendar, like when there's a break in the, in the school schedule at the university. I fly, now I'm, I'm like, they're, they're talking to me about blocking and which camera and cue cards and countdown. I'm learning all this stuff. And, and it was just crazy. So now, okay, that was wonderful. So then I started getting invitations to speak other places. Again, had my job, you know, that's a, not thinking about it. Then something happened. Over the next several years, I noticed that I was, there was a drop in the amount of requests for me to do threat assessments and an increase in the number of things people asked me to speak on the Catholic faith to the point where it got my attention. And I said, maybe God is saying something here. Nah. <laughs> no. God couldn't possibly be asking me to leave this to do that. So what did I do? I ignored it. If you ignore God's will for too long, he has a way of getting your attention. The way he did it for me was my boss. My boss was great. In fact, when I was a student at Notre Dame, he worked at Notre Dame. So I've known him for years. 
So he's a, and he's a parishioner in my parish where I'm a deacon. I'm solid. He was supportive of me. Then he had a stroke. He had to retire early. They brought in another guy who didn't like what I was doing. And I went home that evening. My wife said, how'd it go with the new guy? I said, our arrangement here is going to come to an end. Now, here's the thing. I was working 70 hours a week. Between my job as chief and my consulting company, I was working 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week. How did I justify that time away from home? I took the kids to Disneyland every year. I took them to Ghirardelli Square in San Francisco. We went to New York. I wanted to show them where daddy was from. Museum of Natural History, Empire State Building, the uh, uh, aquarium, all that stuff. Look what great job I'm doing as dad. My wife said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I, I have to figure out what, I mean, people keep asking me to speak. Maybe I should think about, she goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're not leaving your job. You know how much money you make? We've got a mortgage. We've got kids in Catholic school. What are you thinking? I said, well, hon, I'm not necessarily that I'm saying I need to leave the job. I need to figure out what God wants me to do. She said, what God wants you to do is keep your job. <laughs> Yeah, very practical woman, that one. <laughs> so then that started a very intense time of discernment for me. I started going to adoration twice a week because I want to answer quick. <laughs> but here was the problem. I would go to adoration. I have an agenda. I mean, literally a written agenda. Okay, Lord, here's how we're going to do it. And I would write the pros and cons of staying in law enforcement and the pros and cons of leaving and speaking. Okay, okay, Lord, here's, the, I'm, being, I'm being prudent, right? I'm making a list. I'm double checking. We're running numbers. We're doing financials. We're doing, and out month after month, I was getting no answer. So I went to spiritual direction, which Deacons are required to have spiritual directors in our diocese. So I said, Father, I told him what I was doing, showed him my list. Look, Father, I'm being prudent. I'm, he goes, he just looks at me, he goes, shut up and listen. That's why I picked him. <laughs> he said, forget the list, go in there, be quiet and listen. Okay, I'll try that. <laughs> so, and, and I did. I went in there with no agenda. No, I, I just said, again, it, it brought me back to the discernment for marriage. Lord, whatever you want. Now, then I started getting that peace. I started thinking about if I continue in law enforcement, what would that look like? If I did this speaking and just this sense of just joy, not happy, happy, but joy in the Lord. And peace started to fill my heart when I thought, thinking about speaking. And I don't know why. So I said, oh, this isn't good. I have to try to deter the Lord here. Right? So uh, I tried to pull uh, a fast one on the Lord. Um, <laughs> uh, I tried to do a Gideon. Remember Gideon before the Lord? Uh, Gideon was the least of the tribes. The Lord wanted him to go and fight against 30,000 soldiers. And he said, Gideon, I want you to go. He goes, wait a minute. I'm the least 
in the least of the tribes and you're calling me? Um, Lord, let me make sure this is from you. You see that fleece over there? Um, when I wake up in the morning, make it do all around the fleece, but keep the fleece dry. Then I'll know it's from you. Wakes up the next morning. Oh, okay. Um, how about this one? How about, let's reverse it. This time, make it do only on the fleece. Keep everything else around it dry. He, that's what I did. So I, I'd make excuses like, uh, Lord, you see, uh, let me try and talk to people that'll talk me out of it. So I went to three good friends from Notre Dame, guys that are in my wedding party, guys who I love as brothers, people who will tell me the truth and not what I want to hear. I went to Patrick. Patrick is a Washington, D.C., Bush administration guy, really, really smart. I said, Pat, what, I told him the whole thing, what do you think? He said, you should have left your job a long time ago. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. Thanks, brother. All right. <laughs> so then I went to Jim. Jim is, and it was an investment banker, Re does millions of dollars of transactions per month, smart guy. In fact, he just opened a brewery. If you ever go to Minneapolis, St. Paul, it's called Utapels. That my, my buddy owns that. So I said, Jim, what do you think? He says, you're scared, aren't you? I'm scared, Jim. He said, it feels like you're standing on the edge of the cliff. I'm on the edge of the cliff, Jim. And I know Jim's a very logical, structured thinker ever since school. I'm thinking, step back, reassess, reevaluate. Jim says, jump off. <laughs> thanks, Jim, thanks, Jim, this ain't working. So I said, let me talk to a Protestant, okay? So. <laughs> so Pastor Will Hardy, Pastor Will Hardy uh, was a mega church pastor in Portland. The reason he knows me he saw one of my pro, I, I did some work for TBN, which is another story, but anyway, that didn't last long because I, I was too Catholic for them. But I met him during that time with TBN. We became friends. In fact, he was so impressed with my bibli bi uh, uh, biblical knowledge that I ended up doing his marriage prep for him, okay? And he married a Catholic. So I said, Pastor, what do you think? He goes, there's no doubt in my mind that God is calling you to do this. I'm like, oh, I'm 0 for 3 here, right? So I said, okay, that's, that's my first sign. God keeps opening the doors. No one's deterring me. So I said, okay, step two. If I'm going to do this, I don't know. I know how the consulting model works. I don't know how the speaking model works. So I called three guys who were brothers to me, who I met on the speaking tour, even though I was doing part-time. Father Mitch Pacwa, Father Larry Richards, and Patrick Madrid. So I called each of them. I said, hey, guys, I, I think God has called me to do something here. Um, will you help me? If, if I'm, they all of a sudden, without even, what, whatever you need, deacon, whatever you need, we're here for you, each one of them. And I love those guys as brothers to this very day. Another domino fell. So now the third, now I know that God is absolutely calling me to leave, but I'm scared to death. What's stopping me from leaving? The paycheck. How am I supposed to take care of my family talking about Jesus? I, seriously, I mean, I, I was deathly afraid to say yes to God because I felt that I couldn't take care of my family doing this. So now I got to talk to my wife again. <laughs> so now a year has gone by. A year has gone by. 
So I come back from the Lenten speaking thing. We have a two and a half hour talk, the most intense talk of our marriage. After two and a half hours, she says to me, you know what, God is calling you to do this. Remember, and after, and after all, God's in charge of finances, we should do it. Hmm? Not you should do it. We should do it. And I'm telling you, my friends, hand to God as I stand here before you tonight. When she said those words to me, all of the fear, all of the doubt, all of the anxiety went away. Because I knew no matter what happened from that point forward, she would love me, she would stand by me, she would support me. Why, remember from the first night, the Azeta Konegdo, she's the battle partner. Her love gave me the courage to follow God's will, to say yes to him. I wrote a resignation letter that night. I submitted it the next day, and June 30th, 2012, was my last day on the job. I sold my consulting practice to a colleague in Seattle, and July 1st, I sat in my office home going, okay, Lord, I did my part. Now it's on you. <laughs> and I was, I look, I was still scared. I was confident. I'm like, God wants this, but I was still scared because the paycheck stopped. And I got the more, you know what, for some reason, the mortgage doesn't stop coming in the summertime. <laughs> so, and, but, we're, but we're in this together. So the first few months we lived off of savings until the speaking started ramping up. And I wasn't traveling as much then as I am. Every year it got a little busier, but there were some lean times in there. You know, one of the things that we did, we sat down with the kids. And we, we thought, oh, the kids are going to be sad because we can't do these great vacations anymore. So we sat the kids down. And we said, guys, um, daddy is going to be leaving. His career is going to be doing the speaking. And, you know, he's going to be gone a little bit more. But he's actually going to be spending more time at home with us. And, you know, it, it, you know more quality time and that kind of stuff. And so, but the one thing is we can't do our nice vacations anymore. So the kids are all looking confused. And so Claire, who's the oldest speaker, so says, well, we don't care as long as we're together, she said. I was like, oh, that was easier than I thought. Okay. And you know what I realized, though? That the kids didn't want the money. They wanted me. They didn't want the money. They wanted me. And that was driven home to me when I started going to the kids' games. You know, like... When I go to the kids, like Angela's a soccer player. She was looking at being recruited by the Oregon Olympic Development Team. She was that good. So when she was playing in high school, I go to her games. I've not been to her games a whole lot in the past because I didn't have, I didn't have time. Remember that? <laughs> didn't have time. Now I'm making the time. Remember? When I, whenever I wrestled my senior year, every time the ref would raise my hand, I'd look around the gym. Did my dad make it tonight? Did he make it tonight? Is he here? He, wasn't, he was never there for me. I want to be there for my kids when they're... So I'm out there yelling from the stands. Come on, boo-boo! Come on, boo-boo! Her name is Angela. Okay? But page 18 of the dad's handbook says, give your kids embarrassing nicknames. So when she was born, I called her Pookers. 
But now that she was older and more mature, I called her Boop Boop. So I'm yelling, Boop Boop! The other parents are looking in the, in the program, what number is Boop Boop? Who's Boop Boop? You know? Now, as you can probably tell, I'm a little loud. And so every time after the game, she, my daughter say, Daddy, you're so loud. Everybody can hear you. I was like, that's okay, baby. I just want you to know I'm there. I'm supporting you, you know. And one time I was walking back to her, with, to the car. She goes, Daddy, you know, the other girls on the team, you know, say they can all hear you. I said, that's okay. And she goes, one of the girls came and said, that's your dad yelling. He goes, yeah. And she goes, I wish my dad yelled for me like that. And I knew, yep, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I'll tell you this, my friends. Am I making as much money as I was before? Nope. But my marriage has never been better than in the last six and a half years. My relationship with my kids has never been better than it's been in the last six and a half years. My only regret, (laughs) I should have left sooner. And all that was trusting God's will and adoration. You know what I've come to find out? You know how many people call me, some other speakers? You know, a lot of speakers don't do this full time. They have other jobs. They work for a diocese or they work for a university or do something else. And they speak on the side. They all call me, how are you doing this? How are you able to do this? I said, well, here, look. God gave me a head for business. I was an economics and business major because the monks were slating me to be the financial manager in the monastery. So that's why I studied what I did at at, at Notre Dame. So I said, okay, well, since I'm going to do this, I need to have a plan. I can't just say, well, just trust God and the money will flow. That's irresponsible. So I set up three companies. One nonprofit, which... Tom talked about in the introduction, that's the the St. Joseph Center. But I have two other for-profit businesses. Why do I do that? I don't know about you, but I hate getting those begging letters from Catholic organizations. Send us $25 and we're going to close. To me, that is a horrific business model. When you have to beg people for money to keep your business afloat, you're doing something wrong. Now, not saying you ask for donations. But if if that's the only stream of income, you're doing something wrong. So I set up three companies, three different revenue streams. So if something's soft here, something picks up over here. Because not, I don't care, I could care, I was a monk, I could care less about the money. The only thing I ask God, please help me take care of my family. And God has been faithful. Let me give you just a couple examples. After I left, we had all the kids in in Catholic school. Catholic school is expensive in Oregon. High school is 13,000 each kid. And we don't have tithing. 13 grand for high school, 6,000 from from, uh, grade school. So it got to a point we could not, no, when Claire got to high school, no problem. When Angela hit high school, uh, two high school tuitions, two, we we can't do it. So we decided we're going to take the kids out of Catholic school, put them in a charter school. Now, the schools in Portland are horrible. Planned Parenthood does the, does the sex ed in the, in the Catholic schools. And, let me, and this ain't no joke. They were showing the kids in fifth grade how to use sex toys, Planned Parenthood. Fifth grade, I have a video to prove it. So we can't send them to public school. But we're, what are we gonna do? So father, we go to the principal, we sit down with the principal. The principal says, wait, let me talk to the pastor. 
Because my parish is so small, we don't have a school. We went to go to the neighboring parish. So the priest comes in. Father, I'm embarrassed, but here's the situation. Since I left my job, here's where we are financially, da-da-da. Father says, you know what? Before you do anything, let me talk to a couple of people who have been benefactors to the parish. I won't say who you are. I'll just say we have a family in need and see if they'll help. Well, thank you, Father. I appreciate that. So he goes to a couple of people. He goes to this one guy. The guy's interested in helping. But the guy says, Father, I'd like to know who the family is. Oh, no, you know, uh, you know, we want to keep them anonymous to respect their privacy, but I would not be coming to you if the family did not need help. Father, I can appreciate that. I, I really can. But i really like to know who the family is. So seeing no way around this thing, Father bit his lip and said, well, it's actually Deacon Harold. So the guy looks at Father and says, Deacon Harold? He said, Father, my son was away from the church. No matter what I did, I could not get that boy to go to church. I heard that Deacon was speaking somewhere. I wrote a check and paid my son to go see him. Not for the admission fee. He wrote, he wrote his son a check. He was paying him to go hear me. Now, I didn't know anything about this. The kid never said anything to me. I, had no, I didn't even remember what event it was. He goes, I don't know what that deacon said, but my son has come back to the church. The kids, the grandkids are baptized. He's active in the parish. How much does he need? And he wrote a check on the spot for both twins' tuition for the entire year. So I went, so when Father told me this, I went and told Colleen. I said, guess what? She goes, see, I told you, God is in charge. <laughs> That's, just, I mean, I, I, it, it's so funny now. We've been in a situation like that several times, like with a roof caving in in our house and stuff. It's like, God, what are you doing? We can't afford this, you know. And, and every single time, God has come through for us. Every single, it's almost like God's saying, see, I told you, I got you. You trusted me. You're doing the work I'm calling you to do. You're doing what I put you on this earth to do. I've got you. Don't worry about that. You know, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of the great ideas that could have come to fruition, you know where they are right now? In cemeteries. Because people were so afraid to allow their vision to come forth. They're so afraid that people are going to reject me. People are going to criticize me. I might fail doing this, that they never do it, and they take it to the grave with them. And it never sees the light of day. My yes to God was like the fiat of Mary. Be it done unto me as you say. Reckless abandon to the will of God. And that all came about because of adoration. Everybody says, how are you able to do this? How are you speaking around the world? How are you? Adoration. I still go every week without fail. In fact, I've been going every day in the house. Because they got a little chapel in there. They got a little monstrous in there. Oop, there's Jesus. And I don't go for me. I go for my wife and children. I go to adoration before God so I can continue to be the husband and father they need me to be and the deacon that the church has called me to be. 
That's why I go to adoration. For them, not for me. For them. Best hour of my week is before Christ. When I told you it was a game changer, if someone would have told me 10 years ago, Deacon, you're going to leave your job in law enforcement to talk about Jesus all over the world, I would have literally laughed in your face. Here I am. <laughs> I said, Lord, in adoration, Lord, I'm going to do this, but please just keep me busy so I can take care of my family. My prayer in adoration now, Lord, slow down. It's too much. Seriously, my Lenten mission speaking schedule for Lent is booked through 2021 right now. If you want me to come for Lent in your parish, the earliest you can get me is 2022. Then the, the book writing. I've never even conceived that I would ever write a book in my life. Two months after I left my job, Ignatius, Mark Brumley for Ignatius Press calls. Hey, Deacon, heard you left your job. Got time to write a book for us now? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so that's how Behold the Man came. And I'll tell you this, huh? So I had a deadline for Behold the Man. It took me a year to write the book. It's 300 pages. I had a lot to say. So I have the manuscript. I'm ready to send it. Mark Brummett, you got the book? The book's ready. He goes, all right, you're going to send it? I need another week. Mark said, Deacon, but you said the book was ready. Mark, I want one more week. I want to read the book again in adoration to make sure that when I hit send, it's what God wants me to send, what God wants me to say, not what I want to say. He said, you've got your week. And so I did, I took, every day I went to adoration, I read through the book, I made some final change, some adjust, prayed over it, hit send. We released the book, I, I spoke at the World Meeting of Families in Philadelphia in 2015, we released it at that event. It's been, it was number one on Amazon, in the male spirituality category for a week, and it is still on Ignatius Press's best-selling list four years later. And I've written three more books since then. That's, that's, I never thought I'd be doing this. But here I am. You know, I get up every single day saying, I can't believe I get to do this again today. How many people get to say that in their life about their, about not their job? This is my life. And my wife, by the way, does get to go with me sometimes. She's been with me to Phoenix, New Orleans, uh, Atlanta, Orlando, and the Bahamas. And because our 25th anniversary, she's going to go on tour with me in the Philippines in August. So she's going to come with me. We're going to have a great time. Because the kid's like, okay, I mean, this was so funny. When, we, when, we, when Claire was born... We won this like raffle thing at a parish, a weekend at a nice hotel in Portland. So Claire was a baby. We've, we've never been away from Claire before. So, okay, let your mom watch Claire. We'll have a wonderful couple days at this nice hotel downtown. We get to the hotel, she calls her mom. Before dinner, she calls her mom. She calls her, I'm like, hon, your mom had four of you. She knows what she's doing. Claire's okay. I know, but I just want to check. You know, by the time she started traveling with me, and the kids are older now. We're, we're leaving the house. I said, you need to talk to the kids. Nope, let's go. Get the Uber, let's go. <laughs> we get to Orlando before we get on the, because on the, I was doing a marriage cruise to the Bahamas. And she was coming with me. I said, okay, we're about to, you want to call the kids? Nope, they're okay. Nope, let's go. I'm like, wow, what? what are they? And we, we've, 
we, I mean, our conversations, our relationship has just gone to a whole nother level since I've been speaking full time. And since I continually go to adoration and break myself open and pour myself out in love for them in that adoration chapel. When I tell you it's a game changer, it is no joke. I'm dead serious. And you know, every place I go, people come and tell me, oh, here's what the Lord did for me in adoration. I said, are you telling anybody else about this? Don't just tell me, tell everybody. So they're not just saying, oh, just Deacon Harold, you're just saying that. I know many people, how many people have some kind of transformative experience in adoration? Look at, look at the hands, turn around and look at the hands. See, people's lives have been changed. The, all you who raise your hands, tell your story. Let the folks here know that this is real. Being before Jesus in the adoration is real. It is life-changing. Like I said, my daughter making the decision what college she goes. She went to adoration. What happened? She got a full-ride scholarship. That's how God works. It's not magic. You just have to not be afraid to say yes. I just want to share one more thing with you and then I'll close. When I go into adoration, I start off with Psalm 63 to get myself being the presence of the Lord. Psalm 63 starts off, Oh God, you are my God. For you I long. For you my soul is thirsting. My body pines for you like a dry, weary land without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. For your love is better than life. <laughs> to gaze on you in the sanctuary. That was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. That's my opening prayer. And here's the best part, my friends. What do I do in adoration? Do I do a rosary? Do I read a book? Do I... Look, the only thing you need to bring to adoration is yourself. That's it. Don't worry about what to say. If you want to do a rosary, beautiful. If you want to read a book, beautiful. You want to read the scriptures, do it. But what God wants is your heart. Hosea 6 verse 6, I want a loving heart more than sacrifice. Knowledge of my ways more than holocausts. All God wants in adoration is your heart. Look, sometimes I'm worried about stuff. And so I bring that worry to adoration and I sit before Jesus and worry for an hour. And that's my prayer for the hour, is the worry. Because that's what I have to offer him. And I don't leave, it's not magic, I don't leave like, oh my answer. No, so I still leave anxious, but I leave with confidence that God is going to take care of it. Just bring your, don't worry about what to say, what to think. Sometimes maybe you're struggling in your marriage right now. And as a man, you think, oh, you know, my wife also does this nag me all day. All this stuff, we having problems with this, we're having problems with that. God, bring it to adoration. Humble yourself before the Lord. Don't be afraid to be the man who God calls you to be. Because we think sometimes being vulnerable before our wives is a sign of weakness. No, it's not. It's a sign of strength. What does he say in 2 Corinthians? My power is made perfect in weakness. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. He made himself vulnerable before his bride, the church on the cross. Don't be afraid to go before him in that blessed sacrament and pour your heart out to him. 
Don't worry about what to say, what prayer. Just do it. And just give it over to God. And God will say to say, I got you. I've got this. Just continue to be faithful and I will take care of you. Have confidence in the Lord. And I end with this. In that great gift of Jesus and adoration, let's learn to get past our preoccupation with the materiality of the culture and allow God's power and peace, God's love and life to draw us into a place where there's nothing standing between us and our ability to be the person who God created us to be. Let us pray that the, that time before our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, that time of giving ourselves over completely to God's will, is a time where we prefer absolutely nothing to the love of Christ. Let our hearts be on fire for the Lord. Let the fire of his love burn away everything that turns our hearts away from him. When we encounter the living God in this way, then we will say with blessed assurance, did our hearts not burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us, when we received our Lord in the Eucharist? When we have the courage to go before him in adoration, we will have the courage to live our faith. As Catholics, we know that there is no resurrection without crucifixion. There's no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. And that for the sake of the joy that lay before him, Christ endured his cross. But he said, don't lose heart and don't grow weary. So let us always in adoration choose to follow Jesus, who through the fire of his love will lead us from sorrow to joy, from despair to hope, and from death to everlasting life. Amen. Thank you all so much. God bless you. Thank you very much. All right, thank you very much. Now, since this is my last night, I have to say some thank yous, right? So I want to say thank you, first of all, to Father Door. Uh, you know, it's been, you know, one of the things that I love about speakings, I often get to stay in the rectories with priests, you know, and I've come to have a, such a deep respect and appreciation for the priesthood because you get to share some fraternity for a few days and you kind of get to see the priesthood from the other side, you know, so it's really nice. Father Door has been, man, what an incredible sense of humor, you know, he has such a, he has a big personality, which you need for a big parish like this. He's been awesome. Father Paternoster, you know, I thought that like was his monastic name or something like that, but that's actually his real name. You know, he, he was wonderful. You know, Father Hurley has been great. He took me for Korean food. You know, that was just awesome. Father DiCarlo, you know, only ordained for eight months. You know, and you know what's beautiful? He actually asked me at dinner tonight for advice about preaching. And so, you know, most priests are like, oh, what does a deacon tell me? I'm a priest, you know? But what beautiful humility 
You know, I just love these guys. You got some amazing priests here, you really do. They're awesome. My brother Deacon Lunsford, man, awesome, man. Great guy right here, man, awesome. Tom, Lisa Ponchek, you guys, awesome, man. Great hosts. Tom, Tom worked with my management team to get me here. So thank him that I was able to fit this into my schedule. That's awesome. Uh, I want to thank Rex, Run, the beautiful music ministry, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, man. I want to thank all the table volunteers. And uh, just a couple things. You know, my book arrived here kind of late, but it's the latest book I wrote. It's on Father Augustus Tolton, the first black priest in the United States. Now, this is not a biography. There's already another book about his life. This book is about lessons we can learn from his life that we can apply to our lived experience today. So the chapters are like overcoming racism, building strong families, building a culture of life, finding joy in God's mercy, the power of prayer, all the things that he endured and how he dealt with them with heroic virtue, how we can take the lessons from his life and incorporate that into our lives today. So that's what this book is all about, right? So I encourage you to take a look at that. And then people ask about my dad. My dad came to faith in Christ. The story is off the hook. Um, the whole story is on this CD called Rich in Mercy, it, including how he died, which was miraculous. He was never there for us, but when he died, all four of us were there for him. And his death was beautiful. I mean, the, so I tell the whole story, and not only that, but how you can find healing from, because I, I tell you, there's a lot of people sitting in this church right now who are carrying hatred and resentment and anger for years because of something that was done to you by somebody you love. Whether you were molested, whether you were cheated out of money, some of you have broken hearts because your kids are away from the church. How do you heal from that? I talk about all that here with respect to how I did it with my father. It's not easy because that wasn't easy. But I, I receive a lot of feedback about that, so that's back there for you too. And finally, believe it or not, I have an app. You know, um, I, I was in the Philippines, and the guys came to my talk. They said, Deacon, we want to help you. I said, okay, what can you do? He goes, we build apps. <laughs> I said, okay. Uh, my only conditions are it has to be free, and I don't want anybody's personal information. I don't want emails. I don't want, I don't want anybody's personal information. So they built an app, and here it is. This dynamic Deacon, again, that's the marketing people, not me. So if you go to your iTunes store or your Android store, you see this logo, which was designed by my daughter, by the way, designed the logo. This is my brand, branding logo. And what's cool about the app, if you go to more, there's a Bible on here. So if I say, open your Bibles, you're like, uh, 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 I got you covered, right? <laughs> there are prayer requests. You can say, I go to adoration every week without fail. 
If you send me a prayer request, I will pray for your specific intention during my adoration time for that week. Now, I can't send you a response the way it's set up, but I will receive your prayer request and I will pray specifically for your intention during my adoration time. There's also on here my YouTube. I have 204 YouTube videos, right? So a lot of young people have been sharing my videos around, especially in Australia. You know, I went to Australia and I was speaking at a girls' school and I didn't, they have no idea who I am. I, so I thought, so I get, I walk out on the stage, the girls are like, ah, ah, I'm like, what the heck's going on here? Well, ev- well, what happened was, someone said, who's this speaker coming to our school? Who is he? They looked at my YouTube videos, oh my goodness, and they started sharing, so all the, that's the guy from YouTube, like, what? I, anyway, so, and there's a ton of other cool stuff on here, so just for your edification. But most of all, I just want to thank all of you. I want to thank you for taking a pause on the road of life for a a few days to come and be fed. Maybe something I said one of the nights, or maybe all three nights, sparked something in you. Don't let that spark die. Keep fanning the flame of love that the Holy Spirit has instilled in your heart. And I promise you this, I will pray for you guys each and every day. And I beg you to please pray for me as well. I need your prayers. You know, traveling can be difficult sometimes, especially this time of year with weather and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, um, but I just want to ask you for your prayers because they really, really, really mean a lot. And I do feel them. So uh, thank you. Now, someone said wanted me to give you a blessing, but there's priests here, you know, so they outrank me. So, um, where's, where's Father? Do you want to give a blessing? They wanted me to give a blessing, but I, you know, I have to defer to you guys. You want to do a Father Carlo? Nice haircut too, bro. Is Father Richard out there? All right. Thank you very much, Deacon, for uh, your presence and your time and your words for us this weekend, or this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace.